This is a special and I think particularly serious episode of the Catholic Podcast today as we explore the sexual abuse scandal of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and the consequences for all of us throughout the church. But I wanted to begin by looking at a statement by Bishop Michael F. Olson of Fort Worth, Texas, who says, as each day passes, we learn that the former cardinal not only allegedly perpetuated abuse against minors, but also against subordinates, including priests, seminarians, and members of the laity. He goes on to say that justice requires that all of those in church leadership who knew of the former cardinal's alleged crimes and sexual misconduct and did nothing be held accountable for their refusal to act, thereby enabling others to be hurt. the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Heschmeyer. I'm here with one of my oldest friends, Father Andrew Strobel, to talk about a very serious issue, the Cardinal McCarrick scandal and the issue of sex abuse scandal and how to wrestle with scandal. Father Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Now, your own uh, vocation story is tied up in certain ways with the sex abuse scandal. Can you maybe speak to what it was like entering seminary when you did? Yeah, I went into the seminary in the fall of 2004 which meant that I was really heavily discerning whether to go into the seminary and then applying to the seminary in the 2002-2003 timeframe when in the United States especially uh, the abuse of children by Catholic priests was um, you know, seriously coming to the attention of uh, the national consciousness and it was a crazy time to be discerning. So you've seen this as a layman, as a seminarian, and now as a mm-hmm. priest. How, how has that maybe impacted your view or your understanding of it? Well, um, from the beginning, when I was discerning and then talking to the archdiocese here that I'm a priest of, of Kansas City in Kansas, and then finally being accepted into seminary, there was always always a great sensitivity to the scandal. Um, There was a sensitivity to how we personally behaved, uh, a sensitivity to what would be asked of us now as priests um, and any new protocols that were coming, um, like the safe uh, environment standards that were coming for how we behave around children. Um, what was emphasized in the seminary very much was impacted by the scandal in terms of how we set appropriate boundaries with families and young people. So it was always there. I think for a lot of us, there was this sense that we were kind of past the scandal in some mm-hmm. way. So I think it's, there's been this really uh, painful tearing off of uh, maybe unhealed wounds on the band-aids. I think, you know, the media, if we're just going to let the media direct kind of where our attention goes to, I think, yeah, it's fair to characterize that most people thought we were past it. I mean, as a priest working in ministry actively, uh, being ordained in then 2009, unfortunately, I have seen then, you know, bad behavior by priests. I have seen um, the effects of abuse on families and trying to work with them. I've seen uh, like our own Archbishop here, Archbishop Nauman, um, do sessions for prayers of uh, healing and trying to make some sort of reparation for victims and then outreach to victims uh, being offered by the church. So in one sense, while the intention wasn't there from the media, there's always been this sensitivity. I mean, every month we're given updates uh, through Virtus, the initiative started by the bishops to try to keep our our focus on the protection of children. But now, especially in light of the most recent events this summer that are coming to light, um, it does seem like 
there's this sense of, wow, we have to dig deep again. And uh, it is a gut check for all of us because uh, obviously there's a lot of concerns that were voiced back uh, over 15 years ago that are coming up again today. One of the things, you know, we talk about it as a scandal, mm-hmm. but really I think we're looking at something much more multifaceted than a yeah. single scandal. You have priests who are sexually abusing, molesting, raping mm-hmm. children. You've got sexually active priests with parishioners, with seminarians, with one another. And each of those is going to raise their own kind of unique issues. Mm-hmm. And then you have bishops who uh, cover up these sex scandals and sex crimes or move them around or, or just don't seem to take it seriously. And now we have a new kind of dimension, at least in the American context, mm-hmm. which we haven't really faced before an abuser cardinal mm-hmm. using his kind of position. So it, it seems like one, maybe one takeaway from this out the gate is that our old answers aren't sufficient. You know, it's very easy to fall back on things like, well, there are a lot of abusers within public schools mm-hmm. or within these other segments of the population. But that doesn't seem to really address the heart of why this is a scandal. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, I, that's what I've seen most immediately, the response has unfortunately uh, been, even just by good Catholics, uh, kind of the same response as before. Like, well, let's compare this to the general society and what's going on, or let's just focus on the good priests, or let's focus on, um, you know, just the same old answers almost that really we have to reevaluate because, I mean, some serious trust has been broken. There are very real different questions that are being asked today than they were before. So let's talk about uh, the case you alluded to, uh, mm-hmm. that of former Cardinal, now Archbishop McCarrick. Mm-hmm. He raises a whole other dimension, I think, to the problem. So Ralph Martin, who will include a, a link to his article in the show notes, uh, has a letter to troubled Catholics about the current crisis. And I imagine most listeners are familiar with the case, but it came out that uh, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick Uh, formerly the Archbishop of Washington, uh, kind of a liaison between the Vatican and the U.S., Mm -hmm. or is accused to have been sexually active with multiple adults and to have preyed upon seminarians, some of whom may not have been 18, and to have molested uh, underage men and boys, um, including the first child he ever baptized. It's kind of a shocking scandal for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons it's shocking is because he continued to rise in the face of red flags uh, throughout the kind of the ranks of the hierarchy. So here's how Ralph Martin puts it. He says, What has been so disturbing to so many people is the fact that there had been numerous warnings to various church officials that he was a homosexual predator, harassing many seminarians, priests, and young boys for many years, but nothing had ever been done about it. And he was continually promoted. Even after a delegation of priests and lay people went to Rome to warn the Vatican about the situation, he was promoted. Even after a leading Dominican priest wrote a letter to Cardinal O'Malley, nothing was done. Even after lawsuits accusing him of homosexual sexual harassment in two of his previous dioceses had been settled with financial awards, he was still promoted. And not only that, he became a key advisor to Pope Francis and offered advice on whom to appoint as bishops in the United States. So that's obviously, that's a bigger scandal Mm -hmm. than just, well, there are some bad apples. Yeah, it is a bigger scandal um, in so many ways. The people of God have been asked to trust 
the church trusts clerics, trusts priests, bishops to be able to effectively address the horrors of the abuse scandal um, that, you know, had dated back for decades in the United States. And part of that was to trust that the, the church was not only taking the crisis seriously, but was putting in effective ways to address victims, to address uh, priests that had committed horrible crimes. But now we're seeing, you know, this whole question now of trusting the bishops is now back on the table because unfortunately, you know, when you see such a high-ranking member of our church and the accusations that are being made, and now the Holy Father accepting his resignation from the College of Cardinals, uh, it does give everyone pause. I mean, there's a, there's a big moment right now of like, whoa, what does this even mean? What do now we have to question? What were the assumptions that have been guiding us? And were those assumptions correct? Yeah, let's talk about that. So, you know, like you said, 15 years ago, the bishop sort of said, we've got this, we get the message, we understand why this is such a serious scandal, and here are some concrete steps we're going to take to move forward. One of the horrible ironies of this whole thing is that the public face of it was none other than Cardinal McCarrick. Mm -hmm. So this is from 2002, I believe. It was a Washington Post article called Vatican's Man of the Hour. Mm -hmm. That's a profile of Cardinal McCarrick. Uh, the article opens by uh, presenting a scene from the North American College, where I actually went to seminary for three years. And they talks about Cardinal McCarrick stopping, almost missing the bus because he was stopping to talk to reporters. And it says, At a time when many leaders of the U.S. Roman Catholic Church have been criticized as arrogant, secretive, and uncaring, McCarrick has, been given, the has given the scandal-battered institution what it so badly needs, an attractive public face. Assuming the role of leading spokesman for the U.S. Cardinals during their meetings with Pope John Paul II on the sexual abuse crisis, McCarrick came across to many as candid, compassionate, and committed to strong reform. In one view after another, he spoke of a uniform national policy of zero tolerance toward priests who molest minors. And then it quotes people in the article. One of them said, I think he has emerged as a national leader, and I thought his voice was the most sensible one. He does get it, and he understands the depth of the problem and the need to address it transparently. If his style of leadership were emulated, I think the church would be in a better shape. It's hard to imagine a more grievous violation, because think about the fact that apparently other bishops had credible reason to believe that he was exactly the kind of guy they should be worried about, and they allow him to serve as a national spokesman to address the crisis. It's mind-boggling that he would have the gall and the chutzpah, or that those around him would have the gall and chutzpah to permit it. Well, that's just the question. I mean, the question that's coming out right now um, is who knew what when. Yeah. And that's the frustration I, I sense from uh, laity who are uh, torn apart by this latest uh, scandal. And especially when you're talking about um, a prelate of the church who was the face of the church's response in the United States to the abuse of children, himself possibly being a predator of children and adults, uh, it, 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 it twists us up. I mean, we're not supposed to know exactly what to do in a moment like this. Like, this shouldn't be something where it's like, oh, well, that's a clear violation of, it, it's a clear violation of everything. It's a clear violation of natural law and church law, and, uh, and we should know how to respond. I mean, this is something that is so beyond what we could have imagined back in 2002, and but now today, that I, I, I sympathize with everybody who's just like, what is what does this even mean? And and it's kind of just still spinning. And that's, I think, there's a response that I've been seeing, um, you know, in social media, is those who are paying attention really are just trying to grapple with 
how is this even possible? Right. I mean, there's still such a shock right now uh, in the hearts of so many that is now turning into, well, no, we are shocked, but we also are mad and we want some response. Um, and then like sorting out then, okay, what can that response be? But it's hard to even know how to respond when now those assumptions of, well, we thought we were cleaning our own house are back on the table because that who knew what when uh, still isn't answered. And then the implications of, well, what does that mean? Um, and regarding others in the church um, who possibly themselves had cause for concern way before this summer or way before um, the person who came forward in the Archdiocese of New York and worked with their review board um, to bring the challenge against Cardinal McCarrick uh, from decades ago, yes, but still found credible enough uh, to be made known to the public. Like, what, why, yeah, how did we get here? Yeah, it is a, it's a stunning, and the who knew what when, I think our first impulse is to say, well, surely no one knew about this. That's what I would but, hope, but... But it just doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> yeah. Uh, reporters saying, now that it's broken, well, everybody knew about this, but no one would go on the record about it. You know, at the NAC, at least one seminarian during my time said that Cardinal McCarrick had put the moves on him in an elevator mm. and tried something. And so if this was that rampant, and... This many people were involved, witnessed something, were testifying to something, at least privately. It is sort of shocking that it didn't come until now, that it didn't break until now, that there were no apparent repercussions at all for this kind of behavior. Yeah. So I think people are asking, how did it get to the point where we're only finding about, out about this now, especially now when it's revealed that it, uh, there were two settlements paid by the church in regards to former Cardinal McCarrick. Um, and his uh, activities with, it seems, adults, but for those settlements, but that supposedly now um, that wasn't wide known, or, or we still don't know for sure who knew about those settlements. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. But all those unanswered questions then beg the question of, if we don't get the answers, where's the trust going to be built back? You know, uh, it's, it, no, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's wrenching. It, you know, it makes us all sick. Um, I have a friend who is involved in like uh, exorcism ministry, and he goes to a conference each year where they tell important stories of the demonic that, you know, would twist your stomach up. And he says, you know, reading some of the accounts of what people are coming forward with now online of abuse by priests uh, in their positions of authority as pastors and otherwise to um, even adults is worse than what he hears at these conferences. I think we've become desensitized too, because in our minds, we wanted to think this is all behind us. This was just a matter of the past, but now everything's good to go. I mean, I wish that was the case. When I went into the seminary, we in 2000, I think it was 2005 or 2006, had the apostolic visitation to all the seminaries. And so I was interviewed twice, once at my seminary in Mundelein in Illinois, and once then at the Institute of Priestly Formation in Omaha, um, as a response to what are the seminaries doing in formation. And part of that did touch definitely on, um, you know, the, the health of seminarians and uh, whether or not the church was taking the abuse crisis seriously. Um, and so for me, you know, living through all these experiences of uh, now, you know, trying to abide by the church's guidelines, trying to be a model myself. And, you know, I, I remember we had a conversation last year. I told you, like at Halloween, I'm in a new parish, the rectory. We have 20 acres of soybean field and a house. And so the house, the first Halloween, my mom came over to distribute candy with me. And then I told you, you know, the next, this last Halloween, I just put a thing of candy on the front porch because my mom didn't come over. No, no other adults were going to be there. So I didn't want to myself just be alone handing out candy to children. And like, maybe that's building the walls super high, but it's the life I've had to live. 
and every priest that is is thoughtful has had to live of like these boundaries just for aren't for protecting us it's so that families know we care and yeah it is different than maybe generations past and it's uh regretful that we're in this position but this is some of the the seriousness that has to infiltrate even more into everything we do yeah i think one of the dimensions of the abuse scandal and its fallout we don't normally talk about mm-hmm. is the effect on evangelization oh. and catechesis we talk about it just in terms of the direct consequence of this victim has their life shattered mm-hmm. but there's also all of these other consequences yeah. if you have a generation of kids growing up where they don't have any close contact with the priest because the priest is uncomfortable yeah. uh, being near them that has you know discernible kind of palpable benefits mm-hmm. I know Archbishop Nauman, our own Archbishop, mm-hmm. his vocation story, his dad died before he was born, mm-hmm. and the local parish priest really took him under his wing, mm-hmm. brought him along on pastoral visits and everything else, was, was really a father figure to him in many ways. Now, that kind of story seems unthinkable. Yeah. And there are consequences to that if, if the priest is remote, if you never have any real contact with him. I mean, we know yeah. the data here from vocations. Mm-hmm. If you interview... Uh, newly ordained priests about how they first started to discern those childhood contacts with priests are so important yeah. for forming the faith and for forming kind of a culture of vocations. All of that is lost. Yeah. There was really good commentary. I'm sorry. I can't remember everybody who's made these comments. I think this was from JD Flynn uh, had mentioned in one of his um, articles reporting on this, like just think now too about the state of catechesis in a diocese who's led by a shepherd. That's not truly shepherding his people. And, you know, like it just affects everything. It rocks everything. If you've ever met anybody who was married or witnessed, their marriage was witnessed by a priest who's now left the priesthood for whatever reason or baptized their children or, you know, was involved in their life in some significant way, they're still rocked. Like it's actually, I'm so surprised how resilient some people are, but this is, seems because of the nature of the latest scandal, um, different. I mean, it does seem different. And I think that's really important for us to grapple with. Some of the pastoral consequences, uh, going back to Ralph Martin's letter, Mm -hmm. he talks about a few particular examples. And I like that he put sort of a human face on some of these other easily overlooked consequences of the scandal. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, one young Catholic mother with two boys, who was open to the priesthood for them, said to me that she now has grave concerns about ever having one of her sons enter the seminary, given the corruption that has been revealed. Another said she could no longer see anyone joining the Catholic Church. Due to such bad leadership, she lamented about the difficulty this presents for evangelization. Still another said seven people have left her small rural parish over this. Uh, and because sexual sin is never spoken of, and there's an almost exclusive emphasis on political issues, mm-hmm. she now fears even more will leave. So it, it really does flesh out, if you will, some of the consequences mm-hmm. of this. And I know you've got, uh, I'm sure, some experience mm-hmm. in terms of just personally having you or your family impacted um, Oh, sure. I mean, we're in this together. Like, that's the thing. If we want to appeal to the unity of the church, our Lord's Prayer uh, on the night of his Last Supper, that we might be one. If we want to appeal to uh, apostolic succession and the authority therein, I mean, we need to. And, And that's incredible in so many ways. But that also puts us in this boat together. You know, we are our brother's keeper. And I didn't realize, like, how much like my decision to go to seminary affected like my family until we were confronted one time by a family friend and my parents were super excited. I had just been accepted to seminary and they told this family friend who actually had a really close connection to our family. Um, and I still remember the look on her face and she was shocked and she said, well, just stay away from little boys. 
And like at that moment, I realized like, wow, I have nothing to do with this scandal. And yet I'm bearing the weight of it in a unique way. But so are my parents. And so is every person in the church. And uh, it's it's a scandal that crosses um, demographic lines. It crosses um, theological opinion lines. It crosses every single divide in the church. And in, in a way, like this wound is a, is a common experience for all of us. So we talked a little earlier about some of the ways the bishops tried to address this mm-hmm. the first time around, so to speak, and the Dallas Charter and the Protecting God's Children, all of that. And Cardinal McCarrick was an influential player, bizarrely, in a lot of that. Um, and so they, they created a zero-tolerance policy mm-hmm. that I know has impacted your life and the life of a lot of priests. Mm-hmm. But now we're learning that the bishops themselves had basically exempted themselves from it. Yeah, it's it's almost like, you know... We always say, you know, twenty. Looking back, you get twenty twenty vision. Um, but it is amazing now for everybody just to pause and realize the Dallas Charter, in terms of the zero tolerance policy for abuse, uh, covers deacons and priests, but bishops weren't included. And there's an important question there of why, and is that an appropriate response now to at least include bishops in the same charter that covers other clerics? Um, but it is just, yeah, astonishing. So many people are asking what happened and and how are bishops held accountable? Um, because it is, it is like if someone uh, has experienced uh, something from a clergy member that if it's criminal, we go to the police. Uh, if we're not sure, they should still go to the police. If um, it's something uh, of a different nature than, than criminal, but still like a serious boundary violation, you know, as a priest, if I'm aware, I go to... Um, my bishop. And the question, though, that arises in Catholic's mind is, what if we can't? And that, or what if the concern is about the bishop himself? And uh, and it's a very, very real question that's shaking a lot of people. So let's talk a little bit about maybe solutions. <laughs> I mean, we, we've <laughs> yeah. seen the problem is very bad, and we've seen that a lot of the things we thought were fixes mm-hmm. aren't. So where are maybe some better ways to go? What are better directions to go? Well, I mean, first, and this this might sound <laughs> crazy, there are actually people who don't know what's been going on this summer. I have brother priests that weren't aware. Like, I know of a vocation director in another diocese that wasn't aware. And that's just crazy to me because we need to be aware of what's going on in the church. Um, I know we can't always be up on everything, but this scandal is such a horror and so unique in nature um, I mean, I couldn't imagine, you know, a family whose son is discerning the priesthood and they first have some legitimate questions about the process and about the school he might go to for seminary. And they come to a vocation director and they say, well, you know, in light of what's been going on, we have some questions. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Like that in and of itself, we can't be ignorant. And that's what's so hard is like we we all either, I don't know if it's desensitized, being desensitized uh, to what's happened or just having naivety to think that everything's been addressed or that the, that, I mean, just not wanting to know, but that's the problem we need to know. So what I would encourage people to do um, would be talk to your priest, like just does he know and where's his heart at and can you pray with him and, and, you know, talk to him. I mean, I'd give the same advice to talk to your Bishop and, uh, and, and see like, is this even on the radar? I mean, that seems crazy, but 
I've been astonished by those that I'm running into who don't know what's going on. I mean, for those who are connected and up on Catholic social media sites and all this, uh, that might seem wild. But unfortunately, uh, that's the reality, just even like knowing that this is going on. But then, too, like there's this real question of what can I do? Like, how can I make known how serious this is? Um, And that's something I, I think people, you know, we have to bring to our Lord in prayer. And allow that to be guided by his heart. Because we have to remember, it's his heart who's wounded first. And his heart is wide open for us because of our sins. It's been pierced for love of us. And he's suffered with every person who's experienced any abuse. And uh, they're not alone. And to bring you know our hearts to the wounded heart of Jesus Christ uh, that's on fire with love for his, his sacred heart. Uh, is crucial at this moment because I know a lot of people are just disgusted and angry and scandalized to the point where they don't know what to do so that it's like this paralysis then. But I think we have to allow Christ's fire, his his intensity for us uh, and his passion for us, um, you know, shape our response to. So I know one of the things that uh, Simca Fisher mm-hmm. uh, recently wrote about this and she was on the ep- the show two episodes ago. Yeah. She said, uh, here, I'll, I'll quote her directly. Mm-hmm. She says, I want to see bishops, many bishops, writing a pastoral letter that says, yes, I knew what McCarrick was doing. Yes, I knew what the seminaries were like. Yes, I got letters from whistleblowers. I didn't do anything. I helped keep it quiet. I persuaded myself it was in the church's best interest to pretend those horrors weren't happening, even though it was my job to protect and defend my flock. Please pray for me because I betrayed Christ, I betrayed my office, and I betrayed you all, and so I resign. That's her kind of ideal from what um, what the bishops would do. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think laity and priests need to be pushing more for? Is that something where we just pray and leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit? Or Well, I think what, what Simca recommends there is that bishops take a hard look at themselves and be transparent and come before the light of Christ. And it shouldn't surprise bishops to hear that because they ask anyone who has experienced abuse at the hands of anyone in the church to have that same transparency and bring it to the light of Christ through the official procedures that are in place. Every time even a priest is alleged of abuse and is removed from ministry or steps back from ministry, there's always a line from the diocese, if you know anything about any priest or anyone in the church uh, regarding abuse or anything like that, uh, please come forward. So the church already asked people to come forward and do the same thing. Have fortitude and trust in the mercy of God that that he'll be there with you in this most difficult moment of being transparent and vulnerable. I mean, if a bishop who knows that he is culpable right now and and is trying to wrestle with that, it would be an amazing, amazing witness to come forward as Simcoe outlines and admit um I'm sorry, I'm wrong, and I want to face those consequences. Yeah, I like the way you connected it. The vulnerability of those who've been abused and what we Mm -hmm. expect of them. And even the amount of flack that some of McCarrick's alleged victims have have faced for not coming forward sooner or not saying anything sooner. But when you have like two lawsuits that get settled apparently with confidentiality or Mm non-disclosure agreements... It seems like on the one hand, there's all this talk about the need for you to be vulnerable, you to be transparent, you to come forward. But then on the other side, it's kind of a hush-hush. Let's not actually talk about this. Let's not actually let people know that there's a current, you know, acting prelate acting this way. Yeah. And I mean, 
It, it is. It is. <laughs> it is so hard for people to to grasp that this could even happen. But we 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 can't allow that scandal to keep us from uh, demanding what's right. You know, from the beginning, one of the apostles, of course, betrayed our Lord in a very serious way. Uh, Judas, Peter also betrayed the Lord. Um, but Judas, you know, that was rooted. It's very interesting. Um, as a friend of mine kind of described, his betrayal of Christ involved uh, a disordered understanding of money, right? And maybe we could say there was greed there with the 30 pieces of silver, but at least he was using Jesus as a means to an end, which is always the wrong thing to do, but also a twisted or disordered uh, affection with that betrayal through a kiss, where the kiss becomes an assault. It is not... Uh, an act actual of authentic intimacy with our Lord. Instead, it's this assault on Christ through a twisted sexual move. And that's from the beginning that to understand that apostles can still fall in those ways, and we all can, but to know that the apostles who are tasked with governing, who are tasked with shepherding the sheep and caring for our souls in such a unique way are susceptible to that should bring us all into a greater uh, dependence on Jesus Christ in prayer, but also an, an explicit um, request to our shepherds to own up to their vocation. Yeah, I think that's a tremendous uh, connection connected to Judas, this kind of idea of a Judas priest or a Judas apostle, a Judas cardinal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing that we've kind of alluded to earlier is this distinction between saving face and saving yeah. souls. Because one of the things that's really galling is that we can talk about this as a fall, mm-hmm. you know, and priests being human, being subjected to original sin. Some even very good priests will have uh, have periods of sin where they slip up and they do things they're not proud of and then sometimes things that are contrary to the promise of celibacy. Uh, there's a difference, I think, between a slip up and someone who just seems habitually like he's just committed to a, to a life of sin, to a life mm-hmm. contrary to the gospel, whether that's in terms of adults or children. Someone who, who promises celibacy mm-hmm. and then doesn't take that promise seriously. One of the questions it raises is, does this person even believe in the gospel? Do they believe in hell? Mm-hmm. Do they believe in what the church teaches? Yeah. Uh, and so I know this is like there's a theological underpinning to this. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, if, if you don't believe that, how are you going to preach it? Yeah. No, of course. And that's, I think, what the people of God are also looking for is like, um, where's the gospel? Like, where's the call to repentance? Um, Don Eden Goldstein, who's a doctor of sacred theology, is on the faculty at Holy Angels College and Seminary, uh, is actually the author of the book, My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, um, said it this way. She said, and this has been going around the Internet now. She said something very important is missing from every statement issued by bishops. So there have been a number of bishops now who are starting to come out with their own statements. But she goes on to say, thus far in the wake of the McCarrick scandal, something that would go a long way to restoring their credibility. Given that bishops form a college uh, in continuation of the apostles' own, they need to take the initiative in summoning themselves as a body to set acts of penance for one, the sins of bishops and all clerics, and two, those who enable or failed to put a halt to such sins. She says, if the USCCB announced it was calling upon every one of its members to celebrate a public mass and holy hour in his diocese as an act of personal and collective, i.e. collegial reparation, it would show that the conference understands that one, bishop's sins have a particularly destructive impact upon the entire church, and two, if 
even one bishop is guilty, the entire college owns reparation to the people of God. Uh, you might argue with like the specific act of reparation she's calling for, but that sentiment of we want our shepherds to show that they care about our souls and they care about their own leadership in regards to our souls uh, is there. And um, it's not to say that there aren't good bishops uh, speaking out and already making moves to uh, to help address um, problems in the future, but that really struck me. Like this call to public penance, reparation, putting love where there is not love and hasn't been, um, to be the context for which then we discuss what's next. And I think the collegiality bit is really important. A mm -hmm. lot of people don't understand, I think, how important yeah. bishops take the idea of collegiality. You know, uh, some people are shocked, I think reasonably so, that so few bishops have spoken out publicly on this, mm -hmm. even if in private conversation they may be shocked and scandalized by it themselves. And I think one of the reasons is they're very loath, uh, especially in the U.S. perhaps, to make a public statement individually apart mm -hmm. from the rest of the, the group of bishops. Like They take... Yeah their unity together very seriously. Sure. But I think Don Eden's point is really good that that goes both ways. That means that when one part of the body sins, the whole body's on the hook for it. You, you kind of can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't say collegiality when it's convenient, when it you know prevents you from having to take a bold stand on your own, mm -hmm. but then not own up to collegiality when part of that college is molesting and covering up molestation and, you know, sinning in all sorts of other ways. Yeah, it's a, it's a real gut check for all of us right now to appreciate that we are the body of Christ and we are wounded together and our response needs to be together. And thanks be to God, we do have bishops that are trying to lead us that way. I don't know. I mean, some bishops might be thinking that the USCCB is going to respond together when they meet next. And, and I hope they do. I hope they do in a very... Uh, sincere, strong, appropriate um, way uh, to everything that's been going on. But, you know, it, it does go a long way when a, a pastor of souls uh, speaks out on behalf of his sheep and then unites his suffering with their own. I mean, the wounds that we've experienced now um, are a cause of division between the people of God and their shepherds. And so to acknowledge that wound and unite their own suffering with God's people and just admit, I'm suffering too in this, um, which I know all bishops are, and all priests are, and deacons are, and families are right now. Um, it, it, that's so necessary to understand that the evil one's going to want to divide us even more in the midst of this scandal. Um, and we can't be silent on that. Yeah, I think that's a tremendous. So, you know, in terms of individual bishops speaking out, I saw an interesting contrast between two different proposals for solutions. Mm -hmm. The first, Cardinal Whirl of Washington, who is the successor to Cardinal McCarrick mm -hmm. uh, in that spot, he's, he talked about the need for the U.S. bishops to form a group to investigate this crisis. And I think in 2003, a lot of people would have heard that and said, finally, somebody gets it. Mm -hmm. But now, after the U.S. bishop's response was to have McCarrick kind of be their public face and then have another bishop accused of sexual abuse as literally the face of the videos people watch... Mm -hmm. That's cost a lot of trust. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like, well, we've given you a chance to kind of clean house and to, to do this on your own. And so I was struck online how the response to Cardinal World's proposal was universally negative in what I saw. No one thought, hey, this sounds like a good idea. And yeah, if, if it was taken, you know, as 
um, the total response right now. Right. You know, if, if that's all. Now, because, of course, we need to look at what's already been said in the Dallas Charger, what's, uh, Charter, what statements have been made, and what needs to be reformed um, policy-wise. But policies aren't enough right now. That's what the sentiment keeps coming out as. Yeah. Uh, so the Bishop of Albany, uh, Bishop uh, Scharfenberger, mm-hmm. he had a good response, I think, to this idea. And I, I love this because it was really edifying to hear as a layman. And because I think it, he gets it, there's a spiritual dimension to it, and he views the response through what seem like very gospel-saturated mm-hmm. eyes. He says, It is time for us, I believe, to call forth the talents and charisms of our lay faithful by virtue of their baptismal priesthood. Our lay people are not only willing to take on this much-needed role, but they're eager to help us make lasting reforms that will restore a level of trust that has been shattered yet again. In speaking with them, we all hear their passion for our universal church, their devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their hunger for the truth. They are essential to the solution we seek. What is needed now is an independent commission led by well-respected, faithful lay leaders who are beyond reproach, people whose role on such a panel will not serve to benefit them financially, politically, or personally. These will be a people with a deep understanding of the Catholic faith, but without an ax to grind or an agenda to push. It will not be easy, but it will be worth every ounce of effort, energy, and candor we can muster. That seemed mm-hmm. to get it. I mean, whatever you think of the particular proposal yeah. of having like a lay-run commission investigating this problem to ask the who knew what when yeah. questions, I think recognizing that this is a unique spiritual opportunity for the laity to really step up mm-hmm. um, to pray for their shepherds, for one. Yeah. Uh, and, and not, I mean, there's, I think, a very commonly a tendency among Catholics to say, oh, Father will do it, or the bishop will do sure. it, to leave everything, evangelization, mm-hmm. salvation of souls, all of that in the hands of bishops and priests. And if nothing else, this is a wake-up call, that we can't just act like there's a clerical class of saints and the rest of us are exempted from the call to mm-hmm. sanctity. Yeah, especially when right now trust is really hurting the uh, with the people of God and their shepherds the role of the laity has been emphasized so much, especially since the Second Vatican Council and the lay apostolate um, in giving glory to God uh, is so essential to the mission of the church that right now I'm, I'm very grateful that so many lay faithful are, are speaking up saying, we want to be part of this. We want to be a uh, part of the solution, not the problem. I mean, that's kind of the sentiment like I had to discern when I was entering into seminary, like, why am I doing this right now? Like, this is not <laughs> easy. Like, I, my family's going to be insulted. I'm insulted. You know, uh, do I have to worry about uh, what's going on? I remember reading a book, Goodbye, Good Men, by Michael Rose before I entered and just being scandalized. Um, and it really was a gut check. But what I came out finally from the fruit of my prayer was the Lord just calling me to be part of the solution, not the problem. And the laity are crucial, crucial. And I think we need to first recognize uh, that they have to be involved. Not saying I know the answer to exactly what that involvement looks like, but I know bishops are listening and they're taking that seriously. That's, I think, tremendous to hear. Uh, one of the things, I, when we talked about this yesterday, one of the things that I think both of us were drawn to mm-hmm. um, was the Stations of the Cross preached in 2005 by then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, basically on the eve of his uh, elevation to the papacy. Mm-hmm. And in there he speaks in the meditation on uh, the ninth station, when Jesus falls the third time. I want to read the whole meditation, and mm-hmm. then maybe we can read the prayer. Yeah. So I'll read the meditation if you want to read the prayer. How sure. about that? 
He says, what can the third fall of Jesus under the cross say to us? We've considered the fall of man in general and the falling of many Christians away from Christ and into a godless secularism. Should we not also think of how much Christ suffers in his own church? Then he outlines several different ways. He says, how often is the holy sacrament of his presence abused? How often must he enter empty and evil hearts? How often do we celebrate only ourselves without even realizing that he is there? How often is his word twisted and misused? What little faith is behind so many theories, so many empty words? How much filth there is in the church, and even among those who in the priesthood ought to belong entirely to him? How much pride, how much self-complacency? What little respect we pay to the sacrament of reconciliation, where he waits for us, ready to raise us up whenever we fall. All this is present in his passion, his betrayal by his disciples, their unworthy reception of his body and blood, is certainly the greatest suffering endured by the Redeemer. It pierces his heart. We can only call to him from the depths of our hearts, Kyrie eleison, Lord, save us. Yeah, let us pray. Lord, your church often seems like a boat about to sink, a boat taking in water on every side. In your field we see more weeds than wheat. The soiled garments and face of your church throw us into confusion. Yet it is we ourselves who have soiled them. It is we who betray you time and time again. After all, our lofty words and grand gestures. Have mercy on your church. Within her too, Adam continues to fall. When we fall, we drag you down to earth and Satan laughs, for he hopes that you will not be able to rise from that fall. He hopes that being dragged down in the fall of your church, you will remain prostrate and overpowered but you will rise again. You stood up, you arose, and you can also raise us up. Save and sanctify your church. Save and sanctify us all. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.